Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. It is just after stage three of the 2021 Tour de France. I'm Kelly Fretz. I'm here with Dane Cash. How are you, Dane? Uh, yeah, doing fine, I guess. Better than most of the riders of the Tour de France today. Correct. Correct. Shoddy Dave. How are you in France there? Smashing. Wishing I was several thousand, well, thousand kilometers further north at the race, but hey... I can't be there, but we've got Ronan there, haven't we? You could go to the Arctic Sorry. race of Norway if you want to go several thousand kilometers to the north. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we've got Ronan McLaughlin uh, at the actual bike race, sitting in the press room at the moment, just uh, huffed it back from the finish line. Ronan, how are you? I'm at a bike race. Yeah. I didn't see, I didn't see any bike racing. <laughs> We're going to ask you about your experience at your first, covering your first Tour de France uh, in a little bit. I think one of the things that... You said earlier is it's quite hard to watch a bike race at a bike race, and that is accurate. It's very accurate. <laughs> that is extremely accurate. <laughs> Let's get into it today. All right, we we had another insane stage today. We had a pile of crashes late in the stage, uh, a number of which will very likely affect the overall GC in Paris in three weeks' time, or just under three weeks' time. Also, some crashes that affected the final sprint. Just a a, a nasty somewhat horrible day reminiscent of those stage of stage one where we just saw a whole bunch of riders tumble to the ground lots of guys coming across the line with torn shorts bloody elbows blood all over the place uh and quite a few unfortunately that look like they're not going to continue as always we're recording these right after the stage so we don't have complete information on all of the injuries yet Always check cyclingtips.com for all of those updates as we get them. But we do actually already have quite a bit of info. So we're going to run through kind of what happened today, the sprint, the crashes, and of course, look ahead to tomorrow. But before we do, today's episode is brought to you by Continental. Let's be honest, how many of you, especially in the wintry southern hemisphere right now, have struggled to get out and ride? Watching these first three days of the Tour de France has to get you motivated, though, right? So... How many of you pulled out your bike for the first time in ages only to notice that your tires could do with replacing? Needless to say, if that's the case, your best bet, we think, is Continental. There's the GP5000 for the roadies, and Conti has the right tubes for those as well if you are still on team tube inside. If you are a gravel type person, there's the Terra Speed and Terra Trail. Or if you've been inspired to get back to your club races, there's Conti's competition tires for your speedy needs. Watching the pros is amazing. Getting out for a ride yourself is even better, so get out on there. And don't forget your Continental tires. Thanks to Conti for sponsoring today's episode. All right, crew, we're going to start with the big story of today, which unquestionably was the crashes. We will get to Tim Merlier's victory uh, and my excellent prognostication from yesterday of course there's a small amount of smugness uh to this episode but first the crashes so we'll, we'll go in chronological order here first the first big one dane was the crash involving garen thomas dislocated shoulder do we have any additional information uh well we know that he went on to finish the stage i mean when he first crashed it was uh, it looked really bad and it was really bad he dislocated his shoulder they popped it right back in uh which must not have been very pleasant, the, those moments there where it wasn't popped in, as Dave Everett here can probably attest. But they did pop I it back in. I certainly can. 
Yeah, and then he continued and went on to finish the stage with most of the other GC riders, and uh, as we'll get to in a second, actually gained time on, on at least one of those big names. Uh, but it, they're going to do some more scans tonight, so I think the real question for Thomas is what it means kind of moving forward. He was able to finish, and, and uh, I, I guess he was healthy enough to not have too many problems today, which is a pretty good sign for him moving forward. Next crash, I would guess, well, there's, there's a couple little ones in there, but the Ruglitch one was the next kind of big one. He ended up kind of spinning like a top right on his butt, and it sounds like he has gone in for scans of his tailbone. Uh, as of recording, we do not know the outcome of those scans, but he was able to finish the stage, albeit quite beat up. Yeah, he had some pretty bad bumps and bruises, uh, scraped up his jersey in a number of, well, kit, not really his jersey, I guess his jersey too, but it was mostly the back side of his kit, because uh, he really did fall right on his butt. Uh, it, it was. It looked pretty bad. I mean, he, he it was one of those crashes where, at any speed, it would have hurt because it was just the fact that his his butt took the brunt of the fall, um, and he was on the ground for a little while. He, it took him a little while to get back on the bike. Although when he when he did get back on the bike, the the Yumbo Visma contingent that kind of went back for him did a a really nice job, I think, of of limiting the damage. Uh, they they were able to kind of get within a minute and then. I think they might they may have been held up by some of the later crashes. They ended up uh, Roglish and company kind of ended up coming in more than a minute behind the stage winner, but a little bit less than a minute behind several other big riders. I am still we, we, we haven't seen the official communique come through yet, but I'm still wondering if they get a bit if they get some time docked for following that team car for quite a while. I mean, normally when there's a crash like that, the the, the commissaires they kind of turn a blind eye a little bit to a team car helping somebody get back to the race but sometimes they don't i mean i i think back to the world championships in harrogate where the winner of the u23 race was disqualified after the race for having taken a a decent sized pull off of a, a team car and there was no question that the yumbo car was was leading the way through you know sort of the, the back of of both the the, the sort of car caravan and the stragglers from the actual peloton doesn't look at the moment like they're going to be docked anything, but they were they were playing a bit fast and loose there. They were they were they were on the edge and could have gone the other way if the commissaires were in a bad mood today. I don't think the UCA or the ASO have really got any space today to whinge about other people doing things wrong. That is also true, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Basically, we're going to ask the question and try to answer it. So why does this happen? Why do all these crashes happen? Like, like I said, we'll get to that once we run through just who exactly hit the deck and what the implications are. So after Roglic, again, we, we're waiting on those scans uh, from him. We don't fully know what that, what the result of that is going to be. So after the Roglic incident, we had kind of a sweeping left-hand corner that took out a bunch more riders, including, unfortunately, Jack Haig. Uh, we were just talking about Jack yesterday, and he is a DNF officially. He is out of the race. Uh not to make light of a very unfortunate situation, Dane, but who is the leader of the I don't ginger know. jersey I'm now? I'm too distraught that the one guy who actually had a chance of finishing pretty high up there as a fellow... I mean, because Taylor Gickenhart was already like way out of it. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the ginger jersey at a time when, it, when the, the hurt is a little bit less uh, acute. And it did way. actually look quite painful jack Haig looked like he was in a yeah. lot of pain it was not it was not easy to watch that he looked like he took a pretty hard fall it was one of those kind of suspected broken collarbones and you know by the time this podcast goes out we'll probably know one way or the other what happened but he, he did not finish the stage so 
in any case, he was yeah. badly enough hurt to, to not go to the finish. Medical personnel were there immediately. He was clearly conscious, uh, you know, nothing life-threatening, but still a, a very nasty-looking incident, for sure. So sometime around then, and we still have not entirely figured out what happened here, Tadej Pogacar also either crashed or was held up by a crash. Still unclear, the... Uh, the radio tour, the race radio, called out that, that he had had a crash. But we never saw it on TV, at least I didn't, and we don't have a lot of additional information. Ronan, you saw him at the finish. In fact, you spoke to him. Did he look like he'd gone down? Uh, well, he said he was fine, and I couldn't see any cuts, uh, couldn't see any rips in his in his kit. There was nothing to suggest that he had hit the ground. Now, he, he might well have changed kit by the time that I seen him. Um, but certainly there was no visible cuts or scrapes or any uh, injuries that I could see. And Pogacar came through in sort of the, I guess, effectively the third GC group, uh, 26 seconds down on the only GC rider to stay in the front group, which was Richard Carapaz and, and the race leaders. So not a not a horrible day for Pogacar, but certainly something happened out there. Uh, and as we said, Ronan spoke with him about, well, basically what caused these incidents today, whether it's the, the route that's to blame, whether it's the riders that are to blame. Let's hear from Tade at the finish. Tade, Tade, Tade. The race was a little bit crazy today with a lot of crisis. Do you think that was a result of the, of the roads or just nervousness in the peloton? Yeah, for sure it was about the roads also. Uh, it was uh, small roads. Everyone knew that. It was also bad weather. Everyone knew that. So. That makes the, the people nervous. And uh, yeah, uh, last ride and uh, downhills. Um, and yeah, people wanting to win. So of course it's crazy. Uh, people, uh, riders everywhere. So it was a really hectic day. Interesting perspective there, I think, from Tade, where, where you know, he's kind of putting a, a, most of the blame on the course design, which I think, having watched today, I think most of us are roughly on the same page there. There is something to be said for how the riders race, of course, and the nerves are certainly a, a contributing factor here. If you put them on the exact same course, and it was not the third stage of the Tour de France, you would probably see far fewer crashes. But still, the Tour knows that. They know about the nerves. That is the, that's the pre-existing condition of the Tour de France. They, they should probably be designing routes that take that into account, right? Yes, but like I can tell you from first-hand experience of, of racing on these roads, like e there there is not a second that you can relax on these roads. It's not like a typical stage where you could have a bit of downtime. They're up, they're down. There's I once heard them described as having invisible cobbles because even even on a dead straight, smooth road, you know, level level ground, there's still this sort of imperfection built into the surface where it's just like it's it's constantly jarring on on your on your bars or whatever there's there there is no smooth roads in this area combine that with the fact that they are very very small narrow roads you've got a 180 strong rider peloton you know careering down it in the most stressful opening stages of of any race for the whole year and the most important race for the whole year and then combine that with the fact that you know and at least in my opinion the first two days there was nothing for the sprinters so today was really stage one for the sprinters and as such you know, there's a lot of there's probably a lot of pressure built up there. There's probably a lot of anticipation for the sprinters as well, and, and that probably led to um, extra nerves, extra 
determination to be at the front and yeah, we've seen the result of it in the end up there. As Ronan said, like, the, the roads in Brittany are small, narrow, twitchy in places. In fact, it's, it's well known in France that it's kind of the forgotten lands of France. Like, there is no toll roads in France because the, the motorways are even forgotten over there. It takes a, a long time to get anywhere, even by car in Brittany. But coming into Limoges today, there are a few other options of slightly wider roads. From living there previously, there is yeah, there is a few other wider options to get into the town. So they didn't need to take the route that they did. I'm not saying it's much wider, but there is a there's like the main road pretty much that comes from Murder Britain into uh it's a long one into Pontivy is wide big there might be reasons why they, they couldn't have used that we don't know but the ones that they did choose are very typical like Ronan says all right so the four of us here uh, I mean there, there's lots of, sort of accusations being thrown around Cavendish even came out and said well you know the riders could choose to ride more slowly <laughs> like effectively that's a paraphrase of, of his quote and then on the other side you know, you've got you've got riders like Tade sort of pointing out that the the route was maybe not ideal for sending that many riders down with that many nerves, with that much stress, uh, and that the the result was was somewhat predictable for that reason. Well, where do we fall on this? I mean, is is there a solution? Is the Tour de France to blame for these crashes, or are they just an inevitable part of the start of the Tour de France? Or another option, are they even part of why the Tour de France is so popular? Right, I mean, it, all all it takes is one look at, for example, in the states here, the NBC crash reels that run all the time. For the sort of non-cycling super fan, is that part of the reason why people t- are tuning in? Uh, to answer the last I question, I think not. it probably is, unfortunately. But I, I do think that today's stage it had a tricky finale. The I think the proper response to today's stage is to do something about it before people crash, and that's always what happens in this sport: is that people. People only seem to realize that something is dangerous the day of or after something bad happens, as opposed to looking at the route a week ago and saying, okay, we should do something about this. The UCI had the opportunity to do that. They're, you know, they supposedly check all the courses for anything like that, and very rarely do, does it actually do anything. Uh, and then the riders, obviously, hopefully they could have said something as well, uh, and, and that would potentially prevent these things from happening if it really is the course that causes this. I'm not convinced that that was the case I mean, most of the crashes today were well before the finale, actually, but still, they could do something about that long before the, the day of. Yeah, according to reporter Sophie Smith, there was a complaint filed by the CPA this morning, the, the essentially the riders' union filed this morning, uh, asking to extend the, uh, the GC time cutoff to eight kilometers out. That was apparently not done. Nonetheless, uh, I think most GC riders would say that is a pretty good way to do it i mean if, if you extend it out to 8k at least that does include a couple more of the crashes from today but that said you know the one that took out roglich would have been outside of that that distance anyway right there, there is a certain argument though that that just moves the the issue further back the road of, of course exactly. you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the sprinter teams as stressed at that point 8k to go but nevertheless if you you know if you rewind back to 8k to go today I, I i can't remember off the top of my head who was at the front but i guarantee it was a mix of gc teams and sprint teams who both want to be there so you know you, you you'd effectively or perhaps just move the issue 10 kilometers further back the road but it would still exist you know you might save the gc riders from losing time but you you don't save 
Roglic from losing skin or Garen Thomas from, you know, dislocating his collarbone or, or his uh, shoulder or uh, Caleb Ewan breaking his collarbone. I mean, even if the guys aren't losing time, I don't think it really matters to Caleb Ewan that he's not losing GC time or, or any of these riders who got badly hurt. Jack Haig in particular, you know, they're still getting hurt. They're still crashing. Well, Ronan, you asked Tade about this as well, so let's hear that. We heard some riders say that they wanted the neutralization from eight kilometers to the finish. Did you hear about this before? Yeah, I heard that. I, I even thought that that's going to happen, but uh, apparently didn't. Uh, should be. I think it would be more safer. Uh, people would not uh, jump each other's uh, in the group, so it it would be more safe for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, now it's done. Okay, thanks guys. Let's go. Cheers, Ron. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, I mean, I think most GC riders, you know, if it was up to them, they'd they'd put the they put GC time cut off at 50k out, right? And then they wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. But but the reality is, this is the Tour de France, and the GC riders have to do the sprint stages, and the sprinters have to do the GC stages. They have to do the, all the climbs, right? You have to do the entire bike race. And as you said, Ronan, if you just keep moving that that marker back, at some point, you know at some point they're not doing the whole race anymore right and i think that that's not really what we want either so there's probably some tweaks that could be made by the aso there's tweaks that could be made by all race organizers dane as you said it would be better if these things were sort of brought up and brought to to people's attention a little bit earlier this map has been available to teams and riders and everybody else for months and months and months and months and the fact that a cpa complaint was made this morning that's not particularly helpful, right? That is not going to, that's not, well, it's just not going to happen morning of. And it shouldn't because that's reactionary and they should spend the time thinking about it and come up with a real solution. The, the, the blame for this, I don't think you can put fully on. ASO, I think almost any course that you design in the first couple of days of the Tour de France is going to see lots of crashes. It just happens. A, a large portion of the crashes we've seen were on dead straight roads it's not like the corners are always the cause the one exception is perhaps the crash that we haven't discussed yet which is the one that was in the finale today when you have a sweeping right hand corner and a slight downhill in the final 300 meters of a sprint stage i feel like that's a a step too far and just asking for trouble and we saw it we saw caleb ewan He's now out of the race. That actually just came across while we were recording this podcast. He's officially out of the race. Broken collarbone, looks like. That crash was basically caused by everybody's lines subtly shifting around that corner and a touch of wheels. And just like that, you've got Ewan on the ground. You've got Peter Sagan on the ground. Yeah, and like the, the final, I walked most of the final kilometer. And it's, you know, it's, it was a main street, narrow, narrow street that you know, it was... The speeds would have been already incredibly high, and then we had this the, the downhill basically into the final corner. And it was the first thing that struck me when I walked up the finishing straight was that at 200 meters to go, the riders were going downhill into a right-hand bend and still couldn't see the finish line. And you know, it, part of part of me is thinking that you know, I think the Grand Depart this year was was supposed to be in Copenhagen, and then it had to be delayed until next year. And and Britannia sort of stepped in and, and stepped up and held the Grand Depart and. Maybe that's why we have you know a full four or five stages in the region here, and I also think perhaps maybe that there just wasn't the time to prepare um, stages or, or or detail stages as as perfectly as they would have hoped, and perhaps we're ending up with 
you know, more of these narrow roads, more of these twisty roads, and then a finish that isn't ideal because there just wasn't the same time that went into the planning as 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 you would get in a normal year. But again, I don't, I don't, I've never organised the Tour de France, so I don't know what's involved in it. Uh, I would have thought that the organisers would have gone to people who run the Tour de Finistère, Trobe Drole, on something like that, to to pick out the good roads that they know are, should we put it in safe to race on but we'll never know if they if they've done that or not because it that that would have been i presume the ideal sort of situation to go to people who know the roads who host big races i maybe not um world tour events but smaller races in the region to get an ideal route because like ronan says that running slight downhill you've got that corner there it really we've it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there at all. You can come into that town any multiple ways and there's plenty of straight roads that maybe not quite as um, pretty in places because if I remember right, I think they must have finished outside of the, the big chateau there. But there's like a, a fantastic big s- square in the centre of town that they could have had a nice flat, slightly uphill finish actually. Yeah, I mean, if there's one sort of type of course feature that is most likely to cause crashes it's usually those slowly sweeping corners right because those are the ones that are kind of hard to hold your line all the way around particularly when you're full blast sprinting at least if you have a, a tighter one everyone's braking everyone's gliding everyone's sprinting out of the out of the other side of it right you have riders trying to literally sprint around this corner and well we saw what happened another brief little news update here roglic has come back from the hospital no fractures that is uh, what just came across the desk here. Looks like he will be, well, hopefully able to start tomorrow. Maybe just some just some skin loss and a week to recover, most of a week to recover ahead of the Alps. So there's the Roglic update for you all. But only one day to recover ahead of the time trial, which he was True. among the favorites for, and now who knows. A bunch of the favorites for that are obviously now... Injured in some way. Roglic is injured. Thomas is injured. I think uh, Pogacar sounds like he's he's totally fine. And then some of the more, sort of more pure time trials that are there, Kempenerts and, and Kung and those guys, I haven't seen whether they've they've gone down or not. But be a, a tricky one to pick for tomorrow. We'll get into the time trial in a little bit. Before we get today, before we get to today's actual stage winner and the GC picture, which has shaken up a bit thanks to all the crashes that happened today. We do have a we have a question from a Velo Club member. We're going to be taking Velo Club member questions every day and trying to answer them for you. Today's, which actually came in sort of middle of the stage or even before the stage, uh, and then happens to fit in with what we're talking about anyway, question is from John Sanderson, and it is, what is it with Garrett Thomas and certain other riders prone to crashing so much more than folks like Sagan, for example? Surely there's more to it than just bad luck 100% of the time. Uh, my answer to this is generally the riders with better off-road skills tend to fall down less uh, because you're just much better at keeping yourself up upright. I'd be interested to hear what Ronan and Shoddy had to say, having been in these Pelotons a bit more than me. Well, well he's, he's, he's got a background of going around in circles, hasn't he? He's a track rider. Not not quite as bad as a triathlete, but there we go. The right turns yeah. that get him, Shoddy? 
Some people, I think, are just uh, not so much unlucky, but yeah, some people do seem to have a, a knack of not being able to stay upright. I don't know. Um, I, it's difficult to say. Yeah, some people just don't have the skills. Some people don't. In fact, if you read this, uh, the latest article from uh, the Secret Pro, which is up on the site now, he actually says, for instance, Peter Sagan is incredible on a bike. He's got so much skill. Like, he, but he expects everybody else to have the same amount of skill as him, and because of that, he does cause quite a few accidents in the peloton. Um, but they're all behind it's a him. Of a little, yeah, all behind him. You look, you look on videos, uh, and there's apparently a few crashes. Well, more than you would think that involve Sagan, maybe causing them. But yeah, apparently. So if everybody had the same sort of skill level as it, maybe there might not be so many crashes. But yeah, there's people who are going to be good on the bike, and people who are going to be amazing on the bike. Maybe um, the, the same clearly goes for being able to stay upright as well. I, I have a theory on this that I have bounced off a few of his uh, colleagues in the peloton, and they've fully agreed with me, entirely agreed with me that. If you look at Garen Thomas on the bike, he is, he's got a position that's obviously very efficient in terms of power output, but maybe not so balanced on the bike. He's very high, he's very forward on the bike, incredibly long stem, and he puts a lot of weight on the front wheel, or at least it looks like he puts a lot of weight on the front wheel that would otherwise be on the back wheel of his bike. And I've, I've had a number of uh, pros sort of say to me, yeah, I, I thought the same thing. Um, you know, when, when Garen just crashed in the past, We've had that conversation, and uh, you know, it, it's only it's only just from looking at it I have that theory, but it seems to make sense at least. I mean, for anybody who has ridden again, I'm going to pull the off-road stuff. Anybody who's ridden off-road knows that you know you want to have weight over the front wheel, you want to have weight over the front tire. Same thing goes in road racing on the road and tarmac. If you lose the front wheel, if it slides out, you're going down, right? So you want to prevent that by putting as much weight up there as you can. The problem is, if you have a ton of weight up there and it does go. If you lose that front tire, there's no saving it, particularly if you're already super far forward. Anybody who's ridden in sand or on gravel knows this as well, uh, where this, where those sort of, you know, those slide outs happen a lot more often than they do on pavement. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a good theory, Ronan. I also, I stick by my, I stick by my opinion that more roadies should ride mountain bikes because there's some quite basic skill sets that you have to have to not constantly run into trees on a mountain bike and I think that those basic skill sets would be helpful for a lot of roadies like like silly little things sometimes you'll see you know some little viral clip will go out of just a rider like hopping a curb for example to get to get out of away from a crash Th those sort of basic you know you should be able to j-hop you should be able to get yourself up on a curb easily at any time if you do have those sort of skills you're going to get yourself out of more bad situations right i do think that there's a bit there's a bit of, of both here there's positioning stuff specifically with garen thomas perhaps uh there's also just positioning within the peloton i mean let's not forget that a solid portion of crashes particularly at something like the tour de france are just where you are and where you happen to be right i think it's a combination of sort of personal skill positioning skill and you know there's some like basic where you sit on the bike how you corner things like that some somewhat some some skill set stuff you wonder if it's guys who are maybe not quite good at concentrating as well. People who might, might have a little bit of a, a mind that wanders in the bike that's going to cause a few of the accidents as well. I think that's absolutely the case. 
The, the one thing I can say about off-road riders and the road peloton is, at least at least in my day, there was this theory that yeah, those guys never crash, but a lot of crashes happen around them because <laughs> they can they can do stuff that the the typical road rider you know wouldn't dream about doing. So isn't anticipating, and that could be you know hopping a flower pot, and then all of a sudden the road rider's got a flower pot in front of him that he cannot hop. I feel like you so. should learn how to hop flower pots. Again, this is the mountain biker in me speaking. I'm just there, like, just there hop are the too many. Pot. There are too many flower pots in the Netherlands to hop. <laughs> when I come over, Ronan, and we're covering the tour in the last week, we'll go out and I'll teach you how to hop flower pots. How about that? You'll be fun. you'll be good. I think that would be a useful skill, and I think that there are riders who are definitely better than others at staying upright. I also think there's a huge element of chance involved, and, and the the sort of where you crash and how hard you crash will impact dramatically the perception that people have of you as a rider. I think Port is a really, Richie Port's a good example of this because he has had some really high profile crashes, uh, particularly in, in Tours de France when it seemed like, it, it almost seemed inevitable that it was going to happen because he had these you know, massive collapses and then he crashed really hard one year and then he crashed really hard another year when he seemed like a favorite. And it, it was like the, the conversation was just about, well, why can't Richie Port stay on the bike? Well, the, the reality is Richie Port stays on the bike like 99.999% of the time wins one week stage race after one week stage race. But he had two really high profile crashes at the Tour de France. And now everybody thinks he's terrible as a bike handler. I don't think he's a good bike handler relative to most of the peloton. I think he probably is on the, on the less great end, uh, if you want to compare it like versus Sagan. But he also crashed in really high-profile situations that makes everybody else think he's terrible at it when he's probably not terrible at handling the bike. You, you don't win that many one-week races, and you don't you know, have that long of a tenure if you're that bad at a bike handler. Yeah, and that sort of comes back to what we were talking about earlier, about the stress in the first week of the Tour de France. And you know, it's worth mentioning as well, Just, and I'm not trying to pick on those riders or anything, but Garen Thomas and Richie Porte have had crashes previously and they continually put themselves where they need to be. They don't pull the brakes. They still have basically the guts to keep putting themselves in them scenarios where the crashes happen because that is what you need to do. Like, and I think that is worth a mention as well. Like, how many times has Garen Thomas crashed this year alone? But still, he will be at the front of the peloton where he needs to be in the moments when crashes happen. Is that not, not, isn't that not learning your lesson, though? I mean, Port, Port not learned his lesson all the way to the Tour de France podium last year, so good for him for continuing to do it. It's, it's, being, prof- it's being professional. It's, yeah, it's worth mentioning that every single one of these riders is an incredibly good bike handler and can go around a corner really, really fast, even in the wet, all these things. But there are better, there's some that are just better than others, right? And, and again, I, you know, it's a combination of chance, skill, maybe a bit of positioning on the bike, as Rona was saying. But uh, I would say, like, 80% just luck most of the time in a peloton, right? Because most of the time you're getting taken out by somebody else or you're just behind a crash or you run into somebody. You know, maybe the, the sort of exception is like Ewan's crash today where the old rule is you protect your front wheel, right? You always protect your front wheel and he touched the front wheel and, and went down real hard. Uh, and even if someone kind of comes across you, you're still supposed to protect your own front wheel because they can't see your front wheel. So... Yeah, there's there there's some there are some things like that that sort of fall outside the the luck scope, I think. Uh, when Froome went down in 2014, the first time, uh, I think it was stage four of that race, there was a a rider was right in front of him and just clipped his front wheel and he went down really hard, uh, and he broke something in his arm, uh, and then the next day, riding with a well, at least one fracture, he then crashed again, 
and fractured something else. And I remember after that tour, there was a lot of chatter about, you know, is Chris Froome a good enough bike handler to win enough to, you know, to win the Tours de France that he should be winning? And people just talked about him like he wasn't a very good bike handler for, for like a year. And then he went and won three more Tours de France. I recognize it's ironic that I'm bringing this up after he had a horrible crash two years ago. But he did win three Tours de France with those bike handling skills, which I think proved to be plenty good. He just had, yeah, it's just a matter of chance. He was riding along and somebody clipped his wheel and boom, he's out of the Tour de France. And that happens a lot more often than I think people realize. I didn't crash very often, but I was also very good at using my brakes too often. <laughs> so maybe that's got a part to do with it. <laughs> Not putting yourselves in sticky situations. Yeah. If you want to win, if you want to win, you don't brake. And I always braked. <laughs> well, thanks to Velo Club member John Sanderson for the question. If you are a Velo Club member, pop over to the Velo Club Slack, or maybe you just tweet at us. Just let us know you're a member, and we'll maybe answer your question. Moving on. Today's winner, we finally got there. It's 30-something minutes into this podcast. We finally got to today's winner. Uh, Tim Merlier, ooh, Merlier, who came off a glorious lead-out from Jasper Philipson, a former action Huggins Berman rider. And before that, an even more glorious lead-out from none other than the yellow jersey himself, Matthew Vanderpool. And I don't want to be too smug about this, but that was exactly my prediction <laughs> from yesterday. I'm going to take uh, all of the kudos I can possibly get for this one because it's probably my last correct prediction for the entire rest of the Tour de France. But I have to say, nailed that one. We had a yellow jersey lead out for a Tim Merlier victory at the Tour de France today. I feel... This is where you all just heat praise. This is where you heat praise. <laughs> praise. Really well done, Kayla. That was really impressive. Uh, Thank nice you. Job. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. I've seen that he did, uh, he did give you a big zip on the podium as well. He said, this is to Kayla. For having faith in me. That was a heck of it was a either finish. either that or that bloke who just drove it on the front. That's all he needed. He just needed a little faith. He just needed a little faith. Regardless of the chaos going on behind him, it was a heck of a finish from Alpes and Phoenix because they they just bossed it. And Matthew Vanderpool was obviously putting down a lot of tempo at the front, but then Jasper Philipson did a really great job uh, you know, helping lead earlier into the right position of that finale and then held on to take second although i i guess it helps when the next two riders hit the deck behind you so it was a little bit easier for him to hold on to take second but still uh, for a for a team that is not world tour by the way it was a really impressive sprint finish also newsflash uh nasser buhani is in this bike race which i had not actually realized until i saw him pop up in the finale today i was like oh oh there he is okay i've been trying to wrap my brains about when the last time we saw a non-World Tour team take a stage win, let alone two stage wins, because at Alpes in Phoenix, and they have a wildcard team for the Tour de France, and I can't think of one. This is just like pretty damn good for a team that, yeah, doesn't have the, um, the budget of the bigger teams, that's for sure. They've got the engines of the bigger team, or the engine's bigger than most teams with that bloke in yellow. They did a really nice job with off-season acquisitions over the last two years. Uh, I think for you know a little while there, they were the team of Matthew Vanderpool, and then they went out and they got some of these riders who aren't just you know aren't just domestiques. They're riders who can win in their own right. Philipson and and Merlier both are riders who can win in their own right, and they've done so. They've they've done a lot of they've had a lot of great results with this team, and it's it's been very much not just the team of Vanderpool, thanks to mostly those two riders. Uh, and, and it means that this squad has been, yeah, I mean, there, there are World Tour teams that have been significantly less successful this year 
And it's and it's not just down to Matthew Vanderpool. Although it probably helps that Vanderpool is there to keep the sponsors happy and potentially keep the cash flowing in. So I mean that that's the real the real success story here is signing Matthew Vanderpool when he's young. Uh, that's that's I mean, how you just, turn into a good team. Yeah, it's just proof that you don't need a world tour license if you have a Matthew Vanderpool. Which granted there aren't that many of them, <laughs> right? But still, they're getting everything that they need without some of the uh, the strictures that are put on World Tour teams. So kudos to them. Uh, it was an awesome victory. And well, I, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if we see more of them from Merlier and, and maybe even Jasper Philipson too, because he was right there. And when you've got something, somebody with the with the horsepower of Vanderpool to do that like one k to five hundred meters stint, it, who's going to come around that? You know, like who, nobody is going to to outpower Vanderpool for 500 meters at the end of, of a bike race like that. I just don't see any. I don't. I don't honestly see any other leadout train in this race that is is fully capable of, of taking it to them. With the possible exception of the Kuna Quickstep. We should mention that Cav today was stuck behind a number of crashes. He actually came across the line with four spokes missing, apparently. From, a, from sort of being in and near a bunch of different crashes. That's why they didn't contest today. But with you and out, I don't see I don't see any other team capable of pulling a lead out like Alpes and Phoenix is right now. Yeah, I think it's just quick step. Although with you and out, as you point out, I think Merlier and, and, and uh, Cavendish both, I think, are going to be in line for a lot of wins. Uh, I was kind of expecting you and to be the one leading the way, and obviously now that he's got a broken collarbone, that's not going to happen, and there are a lot more sprint opportunities for, yeah, for Merlier, for Cavendish, and for, you know, maybe Arno DeMar, uh, Mats Pedersen, but it's, it's it's suddenly wide open. Like, we, we suddenly have this wide open sprint field where, I, who knows who's going to win the, the next, like, seven sprint stages. It's too bad Sam Bennett's not there. Because I think if Sam Bennett was there, we would know who's going to win the next yeah. seven sprint stages. <laughs> uh Anyway, we don't need to rehash that one. If you want our thoughts on Patrick Lefebvre, uh, go back a couple episodes. We get into that in detail. Before we get into tomorrow's stage, Dane, where, what does the GC picture look like? Who, who lost time? Who gained time? What happened today? Yeah, Matthew Vanderpool still in the lead here. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe in second overall. And uh, further, I think, bolstering his case as somebody that's going to be talked about as a can he win the Tour de France rider for the next two weeks or so. Uh, Richard Carpas is the rider in third, and he, I think, is the of the GC riders of the, the you know the big GC favorites. If you're not including Alaphilippe, he was the one who had the best day because he finished with that sprint group, uh, and and basically nobody else did. I mean, unless like I said, unless you count Alaphilippe and, and maybe Wad van Aert, uh, and then Tadej Pogacar, last year's winner, finishing 26 seconds down alongside many others, including Gary Thomas. So. Kudos to Thomas. He dislocated his shoulder while gaining time on Primoz Roglic today, uh, which is not something I expected to say uh, an hour and a half ago when he first went down. Two things. One, he separated it over the winter previously, which, one, means that it will pop out easier, right? But also means it should pop in easier, in theory. And so maybe if he gets all sort of strapped up, maybe he can continue to ride with it like that. I'm sure it's going to be painful. My other thing... Uh, the Olive Believers are already gathering steam. Uh, I can feel the groundswell of Olive Believer support. And what I really want for this podcast, and I'm hoping someone out there can help me out, 
I want a, I want a little Owl Believer theme tune. If anybody out there has musical chops, you can make me an Owl Believer jingle that I can use whenever we talk about my belief in Owl Philippe. I would love that. Shoot it over to me. Editor at cyclingtips.com or just like tweet it at me or something. I really want a theme tune and I have zero musical talent. I got check minus in recorder in kindergarten and I haven't tried again since. Can I just pull you up a second, Kaylee, on something you said about shoulders popping back in easy? That's absolutely <laughs> cobbler's eh? Trust me on this one. Mine's come out oh. over probably about 12 times. Comes out easy enough. They do not go back in easy. All right. Scratch that one then. Yeah. You can delete that bit. Easy. <laughs> was, was it Shrek who's saying I'm a believer? Sure, that could be easily changed I'm, to... There's so many believer. options. There's options. I'm just saying. I think that's anybody the one right there. Talent out there that, that wants their work presented, uh, I'll send you a t-shirt or a hat or something. I'll send you something if you get us a, if you get us a jingle. For those who are curious, Alaphilippe is like 12 to 1 now to, to win the tour. He's ahead of like all but three riders. Some bookies even have him shorter than Gary Thomas himself. So a lot of Ala believers out there looks like putting their money on, on Julian Alaphilippe to continue to, to thrive in the race. This is why we need a jingle. We need one. We do. Uh, how about this? I'll be at the tour starting on the first rest day. I'll get you a cool piece of Tour de France swag, and I will send it to you if you make us a jingle. All right, let's look ahead to tomorrow. We have another likely sprinter stage. Before we get into sort of racing prognostication here and making our picks, let's hear from Yosebine on a little history from Perry Brest Perry. On stage four, we still race through Brittany, and we are in the department of Ille-et-Vilaine. The Finnish town of Fouchières is a regu regular feature on the Tour de France. In 2013, it featured as the start of stage 12, won by Marcel Kittel, ahead of Mark Cavendish. And in 2015, it was the Finnish town for stage 7, won by Mark Cavendish, ahead of André Greipel. But Fouchère also serves as a control point or a checkpoint for the ultra race Paris-Brest that runs from, well, um, Paris to Brest and back. The Paris-Brest was created in September of 1891 by a newspaper like so many early cycling races. It was a test for the riders' endurance and the bicycle's durability. You had to race self-sufficiently, so find your own food, a place to sleep and fix the bike. And you had to complete the race on the same bike you started on. There were many interested riders in 1891, only men because riding would cause all sorts of adverse effects for those frail female bodies, and the seven interested women were therefore refused. Well, there were 300 starters, of which 10 on a tricycle, two tandem teams and even a penny farthing. The first rider across the line was Charles Terron from France. He completed the 1196 kilometers or 743 miles in 71 hours and 22 minutes. And Wikipedia teaches us that Terron rode a Humber bike that was built in Beeston, Nottinghamshire in the UK. The bike weighed 21 kilos, so that's about three times as much as the average Tour de France bike nowadays. He wrote Prototypes Pneumatic Tires, designed by Michelin, which were patented earlier that year, and the bike even had a front brake and curved bars. His main rival rode Dunlop Tires, 
and Terran passed him on the third night when his rival was sound asleep. All the other contestants rode solid tyres and stood no chance against the Numos, despite the fact they also had flat tyres taking well over an hour to fix. Terran victoriously rode into Paris where a crowd of 10,000 awaited him. Ten years later, in 1901, another newspaper took over the organization, and that was Henri Desgranges' Lotto Vélo. And there were so many papers sold that year during the event that there was a demand for an even bigger race, and that, two years later, became the Tour de France. The Paris-Brest event is still held regularly as one of the cycling's endurance events. In 2019, the first finisher, they don't use the term winner in these so-called randonneur events was German Heil Eckstein in 43 hours and 49 minutes. And the fastest woman was also from Germany. Anna Orenz completed her Paris-Brest and back to Paris in 51 hours and 2 minutes. And if you Google Paris-Brest or are a great British Bake Off fan like I am, you probably know it's a classic French dessert. It's made of shoe pastry and in Bake Off that usually comes with a whole range of disasters. But this dessert was invented to commemorate, yes indeed, the very first Peri-Brest bike race. That's why it's round, it's shaped like a bicycle wheel. And having ridden 1200 kilometers, the ginormous number of calories won't be a real issue, I guess. I have to say, Shadi, Jose's uh, segment today just made me a little bit hungry. I don't blame you. Them cakes are delicious. I actually put a tweet up at the start of the tour complaining that no journalist has actually put a picture up of a peri breast because they're ooh, super tasty. Mm, tasty, tasty. All right, let's get into tomorrow's stage. Dane, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, a potential another sprint stage. Uh... Although, I don't know, after today, I'm like hesitant to say anything because it's just there was so much. There's been so much chaos in the last three days. But yeah, tomorrow's stage looks like it should be one for the sprinters. The, the profile has a very sprint friendly look to it. There's there is nary a categorized climb on the menu uh, for stage four. Uh, there could be some weather, which could certainly impact things. I think it's going to be quite windy and there's a chance of some pretty serious rain as well. So if there weren't already enough you know, concerns about crashes at this tour, there could be more of that on stage four. Uh, but I think it should be one for the sprinters, assuming we don't get some massive crash fest or, you know, rain or wind splitting up the pack. Uh, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we do have two roundabouts in the final kilometer tomorrow. Now, <laughs> they, they might be, they might be like flattened out as they sometimes do for the tour, but uh, just looking at the combination of the route book and Google Maps, we have two, one fairly large roundabout and one fairly small, but the fairly small one could be uh, is it has to be well with inside the final kilometer. Is uh, is there a flower pot in the middle that we can do some hopping over? I reckon you could bunny hop this whole roundabout. <laughs> All right, picks. I'm concerned because if I pick somebody, I feel like I'm gonna. It, it means something bad for them will happen. Uh, but <laughs> that's how it usually is. I generally jinx people. That's usually how my picks go. Is I pick you and you are guaranteed not to win the bike race. Which is why I really need to just hang on to, to yesterday's pick for the next three weeks. I'll continue to mention it. But I think Burlier is going to win uh, stage four. He looks like he's got the speed and he's got the lead out. 
And with Ewan gone, I, I really think Merle is going to rack up the wins. Shadi? I would I want to agree with Dane, and I, I should agree with Dane because he's probably going to be right. But like you and Alan believe it, I should. Be, I want to believe in Cav. I reckon he's going to be in his room tonight, lacing his wheel up again, putting four new spokes in there, because he, he's, he's a bit of a mechanic himself. Apparently, he likes to build his bike up at the start of the season himself. So yeah, he's got wheel jig in his bedroom, end of his bed, relacing his wheel, getting ready for tomorrow. And he's, he's going to take the win tomorrow because he has won there previously as well. Ronan? Yes? Who are you picking for tomorrow? Uh, I agree that it's sort of hard to look past Merlier, but I am going to go for Arnaud Demar. Ooh. I think he missed nice. out today. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I was. Uh, yeah, I think the Group Ammo squad are going to get it tomorrow. Get it together tomorrow and deliver him to win. I'm going Cav. I'm with I'm with Shadi today. I think uh, Morkow is still the best leadout man in the world. Maybe second to Matthew Vanderpol. Uh, unclear, but I still I do think he's the best leadout guy in the world. And if there's, as it sounds like, there's some. Uh, some road furniture in the finale. I think they could be there. And I think Cav is going to take a stage victory. I think it's his first of two this Tour de France, is my guess. All right. Let's wrap it up for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we'll be back from stage four tomorrow. A demain. Au revoir. <laughs>